0: Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby and today I'm joined by two experts in migration and demography, Professor Jakob Biak and Dr. Daniela Vono. Professor Biak is Professor of Statistical Demography at the University of Southampton in the UK, where he specializes in applying quantitative methods to studies of migration and population, especially demographic forecasting and the population shifts that are caused by conflict and violence. He's also worked as a researcher in Poland and at the UN International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in the Hague. And Dr. Vono is Deputy Executive Secretary at the Population Europe Network based at the Max Planck Institute for Demographic Research in Germany. The network brings together Europe's leading research institutes in population studies with a focus on connecting latest research and top experts with policymakers as well as with the public. So... Daniela and Jakub, welcome both of you to the podcast. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Many thanks for having us on the podcast. Great to be here. So mostly on this podcast, we talk about uh, general issues in science advice, like how it should be done, how it should be communicated, what structures you need, and so on. But I'm also very happy sometimes to look at case studies. So particular areas where science advice or expert advice of whatever kind plays a particular role which might be unusual or particularly challenging in some way. And I rather imagine, or at least I hope, that you're going to tell me that migration policy is one of those areas. So before we get stuck into the question of uh, how evidence can be brought to bear, could you maybe give me and the audience a whirlwind tour of the main questions and issues in migration policy in general at the moment?
2: Sure. I think one of the main things to note is that there is no single migration policy and that migration and migration-relevant policies are actually scattered among many areas of, and, and government departments, be it in national governments or at the, at the European Union level. So the, the tricky part is uh, that decisions made in one area – might have an impact on the processes that happen and on the decisions that are being made in, in another area. So just to give you a, a few examples, right? labor migration. right? This is, this is something that would be typically of, of interest to the government departments, like the Ministries of Labor or Department for Work and Pensions in the United Kingdom. But at the same time, it's obviously cross-cutting the domain of responsibility with the, the Interior Ministry or the Home Office. So there are already built in tensions around some of the areas of migration policies, just because they are driven by different parts of the government machinery that may have goals that are not in perfect alignment. And that's even before we get to the broader question, which is what kind of migration we are talking about, because we will be talking about different types of migration. Each of which will be subject to different policies and and policy decisions, so we can talk about labor migration, we can talk about family migration, we can talk about student migration, and you know last but not least we can talk about asylum migration which is which is something that is uh, every time there is a crisis, there is a humanitarian crisis that leads to high numbers of refugees and asylum seekers worldwide this is This is the kind of migration type that gains a lot of prominence, both in the media and also in the policy circles.
0: And if there's no such thing as one single monolithic migration policy, does that also mean there's no such thing as an expert on migration policy in general? Is the expertise more focused?
2: I would think so, because the, the, the area of migration studies is also very broad, and it's, it's something that connects many different disciplines of science. So you have uh, labor migration with support of expertise from labor economics, pretty much. But then at the same time, you have asylum migration where the expertise in political science and international relations would be, would be much more relevant to some of the specific questions that the policy advice might be able to, to offer. So it's, it's, that's part of the difficulty that migration is such a multidimensional and complex process that you can't pinpoint it to a single driver. And also you can't pinpoint it to, the, to a single area of expertise that could help the the government departments make decisions in specific areas?
1: Yes, uh, in the work we do at Population Europe, we are working a lot on collaborative projects related to population issues. And if you look at the projects that you have at the EU level, the topic of migration is the most interdisciplinary one. We we never have a project on migration that only includes social scientists. It always includes many other disciplines. So it includes economists, it includes uh, lawyers, anthropologists, so it's, it's re- a really transdisciplinary field.
0: Gotcha. So other than big evidence gaps, are there questions we don't yet know the answer to or, or how to answer?
2: Definitely. And research and migration knowledge is full of gaps. And in a sense, some of that is, is just the feature of the processes that we are looking at. So migration amongst the demographic processes that, uh, that uh, we can look at, migration is the one that's by far the most uncertain, because in contrast to other processes such as mortality or fertility, which have biological components to them, migration doesn't. Migration is purely driven by human choice and by the agency of individual people and, and therefore it's much more difficult to capture, to conceptualize, to measure, because you have to agree on some form of measurement which uh, may differ between different, uh, different countries or different purposes of measurement. And then when it comes to prediction, that this becomes even more uncertain and complicated. So the work we are currently doing is, is looking at the knowledge gaps in particular. So what we are trying to do is to see what knowledge gaps exist that can be potentially filled by, by more research and hopefully with the aim of supporting policy and which elements will be always beyond beyond the reach so you know to play on Donald Rumsfeld's uh, distinction you know that are knowable unknowns and there are unknowable unknowns and knowing the knowing the boundary between them is actually very important also for policy because there is if there is only as much as we can learn and some of the processes some of the drivers are Beyond our predictive capabilities, then it means that we need to shift perspective from thinking about, you know, getting the best possible advice to getting the best possible response to whatever may happen and having contingency plans. This is especially vital in the case of asylum migration. You know, asylum crises when they happen, they can happen very quickly uh, with very high intensity. You know, the, the U- Ukraine uh, war too is a case in point. Because we have been seeing up to 200,000 uh, people crossing the crossing the border in any single day at the beginning of March 22, so so this is this illustrates the scale of the challenge, right? It's not something that could be predicted in advance, but it is something that requires that sort of shifts the owners from the advisors to the decision makers actually to make sure that the, the preparedness mechanisms are there. And what, where we can help is actually we can help design mechanisms to help with the preparedness. we can we can think of maybe you know some early warning systems or or similar uh, monitoring tools that would help us detect things as they start happening. but then so the, the responsibility shifts back from the from the scientific advice back to the area of policy.
1: If I may add uh, it's not only about what we don't know from the scientific side and what we can know. It's also about, we don't know about the policy consequence of policies on migration. And this is something that is uh, largely ignored many times, and uh, it should be more explored because you can can have the same policy in different countries to select flows, for example, and they can have different consequences. There are lots of uh, unknown on the impact policies can really have.
0: Mm. So it sounds like it ought to be really very important for policymakers to have access to this kind of scientific knowledge, and also for them, I guess, to understand where the gaps in the knowledge are. But we all know this is a topic of very high political importance and quite a lot of controversy, which means I also want to ask you then, how welcome is expert advice in this context?
2: I guess part of the answer is, I mean, to to be a bit cheeky, one can say, you know, it's, it's probably... The degree to which it's welcome depends on the degree to which it aligns with the current political priorities. But uh, on, a, on a more serious note, you know, there, there is clearly a distinction between between advice and policy. And I think that it's it's worth coming back to this distinction and to this, uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher's statement that advisers advise and, and ministers decide, because in a way. Our role as scientific advisors probably shouldn't depend on whether our advice will be welcome or not. We are we are tasked to deliver the, the, the evidence to the best of our capabilities. But I think what we should be working on in this area is communication gaps. So there are quite clear communication gaps in terms of the messages we are trying to convey about the nature of the processes such as migration. So I think the fact that Migration is not something that can be turned off and on like a tap with running water. Uh, is something that still needs to cut through, probably to the to the decision making bodies. And part of the issue here is that there is the, the you know it, it it may well be that the scientists are quite used to discussing things in terms of you know uncertainties, caveating everything. De- decision makers have to make a decision no matter what, but appreciating the fact that, that you know, things, even, even, you know, best designed policies will have unintended consequences, will cause some ripples, some downstream effects that haven't been exactly thought through. Starting this discussion from, from this point, and, and even trying to map these unintended consequences, what they might be, uh, just to try to prepare for different different scenarios for different contingencies would be a good start. So I think the uh, the main the main point I wanted to make here is that I think that that we need to as scientists we need to get better in in communicating these uh, caveats and and uncertainty uh, elements of uncertainty to policymakers. But at the, at the same time, you know, we would probably really appreciate. If this was taken, if this was taken seriously rather than just as a as a lip service,
1: I I completely agree with what Jakub just said. Uh, it depends a lot on the type of welfare states, the type of uh, mechanisms in place in different countries to really create sustainable dialogue with the scientific community, not only at the high level but also in the officer's level. It's very important from the science side to know where the process starts, when a policy starts to be discussed and starts to be developed in a specific department, and where does the scientific advice comes in and when. This is, uh, we see lots of heterogeneity in in Europe. And uh, for example, in Germany, The process is pretty much advanced. There are more than three big state-financed research-related institutions that are there to provide scientific advice on migration to policymakers, and they have a dialogue. They're absolutely open and welcoming science advice from other institutions as well. So there are mechanisms in place, while in other countries this doesn't exist. So it's when we look at the question, how welcome, is science advising in migration policy, we need to look also in the, in the process from the governmental side on how open and how ready they are to listen to science.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And it's interesting that you mentioned about the different levels of policymaking, you know, politicians at the top, and then all these other levels of policymaking, which are a bit less public. And you mentioned one reason you might hope to have more success in inputting evidence at the other levels rather than right at the top with the minister or whatever, because you can have a more permanent conversation with a structure designed to interface with that. And that's maybe harder to achieve right at the top. But I wonder if it also might just be a bit less politically charged at those lower levels because the debate isn't happening or isn't yet happening in the political arena. And so it's not subject to all those extra considerations. Is that just a more productive time to try to have a conversation perhaps?
1: And if you look closer on how this policy process is conducted there are agendas in place so the topics that are going to be worked it's it doesn't come out of the blue so that there is a a formal procedure in place in many places now so it's you can follow this as an outsider and see okay now and and keep long-term relationships that's why professionals in these areas are so important because you need to follow up on what is the procedure and when it's possible to to have a dialogue and to contribute.
0: Right. So the scientific community has to, well, if not actually play the political game, at least follow it and understand it quite well.
1: Right. And, and,
2: and sometimes you have, uh, you have an institutional framework in place. Like in the United Kingdom, the, there is the Migration Advisory Committee that, that advises the Home Secretary on, on different matters to do with, with migration the the focus is mostly on labor migration and the labor market and the economic impacts, but also extending to other areas such as uh, asylum. But then then we run into the different conflicts between different uh, political priorities uh, uh, of the day. So so for example, the Migration Advisory Committee was giving advice to the ho- Home Secretary about you know the benefits uh, from giving access to the labor market to the asylum seekers in mm. the UK, but this Run counter to the political priorities of the day, so so this recommendation wasn't quite followed. So we are really in a in the situation where you know the, not not only the processes that that we are dealing with are are complex, but also the interface between different streams of scientific advice and the policy, mediated as they are through the level of the officials of the civil service, uh, as you mentioned just a moment ago, you know, that there is inevitably a lot of tension in this uh, this sphere.
0: That makes sense. And perhaps there was a bit of ambiguity in my question, which I hadn't really realized until I heard you answer it. So when I said, how welcome is advice in these areas? And also when I heard your initial uh, kind of flippant reply that it depends how much it aligns with political priorities. So we could both have been talking about timing there. You know, this becomes a political priority when there's an urgent crisis, when we have thousands of Ukrainian refugees crossing the border into Poland to escape an invasion, for example. So one might say then migration advice is welcome, is most welcome at those times and not so much at other times. Or we could have been talking about uh, not timing, but political objectives, political agendas. So the general attitude to migration that the government has been elected on, for instance, if they attempt to take it more a liberal or more hardline view or whatever. And that would imply that when they see the advice as fitting with their agenda, then they're receptive. And when they see it as conflicting or unhelpful, then not so much. So it's less about timing and more about political alignment. And I can imagine, but I want to know what you think, whether migration policy is an area where this is particularly the case because for sure this is a discussion that happens across all policy areas right wherever scientists work with politicians there's always the tension between wanting to be helpful and supportive to them and wanting to be able to call things as you see them and I wonder just whether this is an area where it's particularly acute.
2: I think so I think that there's there's certainly an element an element of what you have just outlined right we as scientists, we would, be, we would be really flattered if our advice was, was followed that would uh, basically confirm that, that what we've been working on all along actually makes a difference. You know, this is especially in the social sciences, but also elsewhere. Right? In a way, this will be something that drives a lot of us to do the things that, that we are doing. And, and of course, I wouldn't downplay the access, the, 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 the feeling that, you know, we are part of something, we are part of the action, we are part of something bigger. But at the same time, there is this professional imperative to, as you said, speak truth to power and make sure that we retain professional integrity in what, in what we do. So, so this, is, and this is something that everyone has to navigate themselves. You know, we had examples in other areas. We had very topical examples in, I don't know, during the COVID-19 pandemic where this tension also had to be negotiated by specialists in epidemiology, in public health, and migration is is no different.
0: Yeah, indeed. So, I mean, that's, that's one thing, the question of how much the scientists should take into account the political priorities. And um, another related issue, which also came up during COVID, is how receptive the policymaker feels able to be. Because it need not be, you know, to caricature it, the neutral scientist versus the biased politician. It might also be the genuinely interested politician who wants to listen, but is constrained by their own political environment. I mean, they might say behind closed doors, look, I get what you're saying, but I just have no room to maneuver here.
2: In which case, it may be something that's also would be a challenge for us within the realm of the the possibilities, how to make the best of the advice we can give. Knowing the constraints, knowing the decision-maker's constraints in a frank and open conversation would also help us. I think that points out to something very interesting and potentially very promising, that if there was a dialogue and if we knew what the constraints exactly are, we could work within them. And still, sort of, from the professional integrity point of view, that's, uh, that would be just uh, you know stating, stating this as an obvious element of the puzzle would be absolutely fine so i i think this is the, that points out two very important elements of the puzzle which are the, the openness the transparency and honesty of 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 communication and and of exchange and and i think you know as as scientists we need to we definitely need to be more open to these kind of conversations
1: Toby, if i can add to that uh, i'm thinking here in a very concrete situation that we had faced some months ago You know that in Europe, there are many regions that are really losing population, particularly uh, small areas, rural areas in specific countries. So they're losing lots of population due to immigration, or families are are moving out, or those who stay don't have uh, children. And so for different reasons, uh, we're having this depopulation trend in many areas. So uh, colleagues working in international organizations assisting uh, mayors in these regions they often come to us and say, like, I need help from the scientific side to provide advice to these mayors and uh, local administrators on how can we have policies that work to avoid that these places disappear or to revert the population or whatever. And um, the conversation always flows in the direction we need to have more family-friendly environments, we need to promote social cohesion in terms of like creating more participatory spaces and connect the citizens there and so on. But when you bring the topic of migration, it's always uh, a bit difficult because in some countries, this is not a problem at all. uh, Societies are aware that we need immigration to have a balanced demographic outlook in these places, but there are others that they really don't welcome. And this is, is, is very cultural and very specific. And a colleague even told me that it's not about being foreigner or not, but not coming from rural areas is also a problem. Like a city person moving to rural areas is also a problem for them. So we should never ignore the role that uh, culture plays in this in these places. And it, it also leads to less willingness to receive scientific advice. Because if you go to a, a small area where they don't like outsiders... You can bring all the evidence in the world and it will be very, very difficult to convince them. So I I completely agree with what Jakub said. We really need to be humble here and say, okay, listen to them first, see where the problem is. And for that, again, you need a long-term strategy from from the scientific side. You cannot just go there one day and pretend that you can change the situation. It it needs a follow-up. It needs professional work. Mm I, I,
2: I very much agree with that, Daniela, and I think that the 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 pitfall here is that academia is not short on egos, right? And uh, some scientists may be tempted to play the role of the all-knowing expert who will just impart the wisdom on the on the recipients uh, and expect them to act on the advice, where in in reality, knowing the context, knowing the the, the ramifications, knowing the constraints under which the the decision makers on different levels operate and having sort of the the, the humility to admit it that that actually where I'm coming in in this role it's really subsidiary to what they need to be doing right that they are the decision makers they have the responsibility they are accountable for it as an advisor I'm not accountable I'm I'm only accountable for following the scientific process and giving the advice to the best of my, my knowledge and ability but I'm not responsible for the decision
0: yeah, I think this is actually a really important point. This example you had, Daniela, of the of the rural community where you can kind of present them with all the evidence in the world, but if you've misunderstood where they're coming from culturally, they're just going to bounce off it hard. And to me, that illustrates the fallacy or more like the insufficiency, I suppose, of this idea of speaking truth to power. Because you can always walk into a room and say, here's the truth, here's the evidence, and like dump it on the table and walk away. But that's very different from the humility and being sensitive to context and, and, you know, general cultural and political awareness that we're talking about to recognize that the truth you're speaking, even if it's absolutely true, might be of no use at all to the policymaker or the community that's hearing it.
1: Absolutely. I completely agree. And you see more and more in the area of science policy dialogue, a movement towards co-creation, transdisciplinary dialogue, and really listening to each other and finding spaces where Policy can bring their own questions, and scientists can can give answers, knowing where they are and not in a confidential atmosphere. And all these kinds matter a lot uh, to make really make sure that it's uh, both sides hear each other and can really build something new that contributes to society.
2: Yes, and it, it's it's important to note here that the, you know the ideal of speaking truth to power and the. Call for humility and knowing one's uh, one's place in the system are not mutually exclusive, right? They're not irreconcilable goals. They can be built together into a policy advice process. And I th- I think the the challenge becomes how to do it. And, and what Daniela has just just flagged, it, you know, there the need to be some conditions met for this to work. There needs to be openness from both sides. To, you know, for, for for having an open dialogue, for admitting the fact that we don't know everything. That there might be this constraint, whether whether true or not, from the belief that politicians would be punished for appearing, electorally punished, if they appear not in control of things, which which then then sort of leads to to overconfidence when making the decisions and can lead to problematic decisions, uh, lots of unintended consequences, and so on. Whether the, whether this uh, perception that that really polit- politicians have to be seen in control all the time, and and don't allow uh, themselves to to admit that things, some things are just not certain, some things are just not known. That we can still be doing the best that we can under the very difficult circumstances. Whether whether there is a real social pressure or electoral pressure on the deci- on the policymakers and the politicians or not. Is something worth exploring? Because, in a way, if there is, it might require a change in the public discourse, a change in the way we talk about things and the role of uh, the role of uh, evidence-based policymaking in the society. Like, what do we expect? And and the COVID nineteen pandemic was a very useful learning exercise in that in that respect.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. And then there's another tension you're hinting at. In the discussion here, which is about transparency. Um, So you mentioned the importance of openness and transparency in the relationship between the scientists and the policymaker, so they can understand each other and build trust. And this makes perfect sense. But then there's another dimension of transparency, um, which I think can actually sometimes cut across that, which is about being transparent with the public. And I have the sense that post COVID, the pendulum has swung all the way towards the transparency end of the spectrum. So this means scientists should always be transparent with the public about the advice they've given, and politicians should always be transparent about when they're following that advice and when they're not following it. So scientists avoid being blamed unfairly and so on. And this is a difficult issue when you're talking about divisive public health measures like we were during COVID. But it might also maybe be a difficult issue when we're talking about equally divisive migration policy, because a lot of what you've just described Maybe it needs to happen behind closed doors so that politicians and scientists can have that frank and honest conversation uh, without being hemmed in by this very, let's say, vibrant political argument. So like, imagine a private conversation between a sincere politician and a sincere scientist where the politician says, look, we both know the facts and we know the political constraints, so let's figure out a way that we can get where we both know we need to get without me losing the next election or or having riots in the streets or something. And if we require perfect transparency with the public all the way along, do we lose that opportunity for real transparency with each other and for real progress?
2: Mm. So I can I can only say that I, I wish we had in the migration circles I wish we had the same cloud as uh, public health <laughs> and epidemiology experts had during. Oh, that. be
0: careful what you wish for. <laughs> it's not.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. You know, it can can be a huge challenge if it if it comes to that. But I don't think that that we are in a similar position. Maybe given the strong political views on migration and the strong political priorities in the area of migration. Maybe also because the knowledge of the processes that uh, lead to and constitute migration is so uncertain. It's still, uh, we know quite a few things, but we also don't know quite a lot of things. So from that, from that point of view, maybe it's just, just the nature of the, of the area that, that by necessity, the expertise is much more vague, uncertain, fuzzy. Uh, much more so than in the case of of monitoring and responding to an epidemic.
1: If I I may add, I think it's very interesting this question on transparency and what's public, what's not, because population here exists since 2009 and along these years we have tried so many different formats of uh, policy dialogue between policymakers and, and scientists and many things we have seen many things doesn't work many works and we have one specific format which is called a high level experts meeting which is not an open meeting it's uh, it's chat and rule and it's closed so we don't record anything in previous times we did it face to face what do i observe in these meetings it's not much about what is said that it's the level of trust that each side had to ask honestly to each other what they want to know. And this is very important if you offer a kind of confidential atmosphere. It's not about not so much about what will be said. It's more about, okay, I, don't, I really don't know and I would like to learn about it and there's no one to judge me. Or at least the people who are there are people that it's a trusted environment. So this is the what i think it's it's positive from confidential meetings but then afterwards to to make it public we write policy briefs and then everybody has to revise to approve and to agree on policy recommendations and this is public so not to say that everything every conversation needs to be public i'm not sure about it i'm not convinced about it but i am convinced about the importance of Producing a reading document where I say, okay, we talked about this. This is what we believe. These are the the evidence, and these are the policy recommendations we are all uh, agreeing after this meeting. Yes, and, so, and we
2: have uh, luckily we have mechanisms and tools in place to facilitate that. So you mentioned Daniela, you mentioned the Chatham House Rule, which is exactly doing that, right? So it's allowing people to speak freely, knowing that only the the conclusions of the meeting will be reported but without individual attribution which is which is the crucial element here you know in in a way this is uh, we are interested in the outcome the process of that leads to these outcomes i mean we need to make sure that it's robust enough but to what extent do we need to be transparent with 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 every single single detail that every single stage of the process is is also open for 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 debate you know it's it's a bit like a question about about sausages, right? Many people like sausages, but the process of making sausages might not be that appealing in all its uh, details. So what we are trying to to achieve here is that the product that we give needs to be the best possible from the scientific point of view. But in the process, we might have, you know, explore some avenues that are less productive or end up being dead ends for for whatever reason. So, So the question is where to put the bar, Endeavors, which of these uh, trials uh, to report and 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 which not? I think it's it's a it's a fascinating question, and I think I don't think that we have an answer to that.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, not yet. So then, given all that we've said, suppose you find yourself in the position of being asked by a new government or a new minister how their future migration policy might be better informed by evidence. So I'm not looking for you to mention specific points about like handling migration now, but more what steps should be taken so that evidence can better inform policy in the future?
2: It's a very good question. I I think one element would be to establish an advisory structure that that works across different government departments that have uh, anything to do with different angles of migration and sort of establish a framework in which the different, sometimes conflicting goals can be Thrown in the open and and different different scenarios, different policy options, different uh, possibilities thrashed out in an honest conversation, with the idea of finding a a compromise solution that might not be you know perfectly satisfying every single department, but then will work across the whole government as the the best possible quote unquote under the under the circumstances.
1: Yes, for, uh, from my side, I think there are two initiatives that are needed, one from the governmental side, one from the academic side. So from the governmental side, I believe that we really need to normalize dialogue with the scientific community, not necessarily having advisory boards sort this problem. We need to have a routine of science dialogue, so very basic things like lunchtime seminars where you invite every three weeks you invite a scholar from different institutions to talk about state of affairs on integration of migrants or so from every two three weeks you invite a speaker you make it on zoom you can invite all different organizations as as jakub said and you create this as part of your routine so the the contact with the scientific community is not only through very high level mechanisms but it also happens on the base and i think this is very important because the moment officers and, and heads of units they are used to dialogue and to learn from the, the advances from the, the scientific side it only brings uh, good results so i think this kind of um, simple and very easy to implement solutions would be a great, great step forward. Uh, From the academic side, what uh, I have observed over the years is that uh, we have 36 partners, institutes working on demographic population issue in Europe. I would say almost all of them, they have invested in the last years on communication. So they, they have a communication officer, they have a Twitter account, they have a policy on creating a constant flow of communication newsletter or making more policy-oriented products. So this this has developed a lot from in the academic side. What is still not well-developed is the policy impact side. Because people tend to outreach with policy impact. And these are completely two different types of work and strategies that need to be created to really be effective. So, so far, I only see strong, well built, with great strategies behind and great professionals working on this on policy impact in the UK.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I would very much agree. And I'm glad that you that you brought it up, Daniela, because I, I would say that from the academic point of view, having professional support for policy engagement and policy advice is crucial. Part of the challenge is that that uh, as academics, we work to different timescales that, that policymakers uh, often do. So, you know, our projects are counted in years, months, whereas policymaking has to respond very quickly to the situation that may be changing very rapidly on the on the ground, so having structures in place that can can you know at a short notice can bring in expertise together can uh, you know facilitate the exchange of information, the exchange of uh, thoughts look through the different scenarios, look through the different policy options. this is something that would be absolutely crucial for this to to work. I think what has the last what the last couple of years have taught us is that Given the ease of video conferencing and online meetings now this is this is much easier than it used to be so So I do not have uh, to go to London for a meeting anymore. I can just log on to a zoom link for an hour if my opinion is to, is to be of any use to anybody and I think this is this is already a step change and i I hope that things will get uh, easier and will get more normalized on this front that we can get in the habit we change the culture. in in such a way that we get in the habit of actually thinking of giving advice to stakeholders in the areas of our expertise as basically part of our job and our mission as academics.
0: Well, I trust, or at the very least, I sincerely hope that that attitude is more in the ascendant these days. So, well, thank you both very much. I said at the start that we frequently talk about the more high-level questions of science advice on this podcast, but it's always fascinating to see how these high principles play out in real-life case studies, whether we get vivid examples of why the principles are there or vivid examples of how they need to be refined or rethought when the rubber hits the road. Um, And I think both of you have given us plenty of food for thought with respect to both of those issues. So, Dr. Daniela Vono and Professor Jakob Biak, thank you both very much indeed.
2: Great pleasure. Thanks.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you very much.
0: The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. we're a consortium of Europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies, young academies, and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism and as such we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but they're not the views of Sopeia and certainly not of the European Commission. And finally, this lovely cello music is written by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elizaveta Sushchenko. And I'm sorry for talking over it.